Just Life, a programme from Radio Maria England. Welcome to today's programme. Today we are joined for the second time by Father John Bowles. Good morning, Father John. Hello there. Good morning, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for coming back on Radio Maria. We're just all enthralled and waiting for the next gripping part of of your story. So if anyone was listening a few weeks ago at the beginning of Lent, Father John came on Radio Maria and he told us about his extraordinary vocation, how he became a priest in his 40s. We know that God saves the best till last and this is evidenced very clearly in Father John's life. He, He went by Concord to America. He climbed Peruvian mountains in the Andes to avoid an ambush and he was finally ordained by a long-lost cousin who shared his name and who had become the Bishop of Boston. What an extraordinary story. And we're looking forward to hearing the next part of uh, your vocation story and about your work in Peru. Father John is the director of the Columban Missionaries in Britain. The Columban Missionaries founded a a missionary project in China in the 19th century and they chose St Columban as their saint, a medieval Irish missionary. So, Father John, we can't wait to hear more. Over to you. Thanks so much, Elizabeth, and thanks for everybody uh, listening. Just Life, I believe, is the title of this programme. So, uh, Life, uh, the Church and Latin America, which is where I've uh, carried out most of my um, priestly uh, and pastoral vocation. I thought I'd link those three together. Backtracking a little bit, because I didn't join the priesthood, uh, as you've heard, until I was in my 40s. But before then, I had been on mission to Latin America as a, as a committed layperson. I joined as a volunteer to the uh, British Volunteer Programme, and was sent to Central America. Now, it was really by chance I was sent to Central America, but I don't believe in chance. I believe in divine providence uh, because that was a place where out of all the uh, areas in the world, I would have chosen to have been sent if it had been up to me. That was because ever since I was very small, I'd had an attraction for Latin America. Uh, you can say it's uh, began with uh, history stories. Uh, as a child, I was always fascinated by history and those tales of Cortes going out to conquer the Aztecs of Mexico and then Pizarro off to do the same with the Incas in Peru. Hiram Bingham trekking through the, uh, the forests of uh, the Peruvian Andes to find the mythical lost city of Machu Picchu. So that whetted my appetite for Latin America. Then going to, uh, to school, had an inspirational uh, geography teacher, uh, and we took uh, South America. And what stuck in my mind, more than the, anything about the politics or the, uh, the crops or the minerals of uh, uh, South America, were, were the names. I mean, Elizabeth, just the, the, the incredible names that I memorized without really knowing um, what went on there. Belo Horizonte, Rio de Janeiro, Lake Titicaca, Cotopaxi, Isla Seawattle, Popocatapetl. I mean, they were just marvellous, mysterious, inspiring names. 
And then as uh, my knowledge of the church and society and justice and peace and all these other facets of our culture began to uh, get great, uh, deep, more deeply ingrained on me, um, the uh, Vatican Council, the call to the uh, the church in, in the West to send more priests to uh, Latin America. A uh, very charismatic piece from my parish in Stockport in Greater Manchester uh, offered himself to go off to um, to Peru. So that was a, an example for me. And then the writings that were coming out of Peru, uh, Liberation Theology, uh, which was written by a, a, a Peruvian priest and theologian, Gustavo Gutierrez, 1968, um, saying that uh, Christianity was a theology of liberation, not just liberating us from sin and death, but also from all the evils of the world, be it uh, injustice, oppression, violence, abuse. And all these things directed my attention towards uh, the possibility of living and working in, in Latin America, and particularly Central America, which was a place in the 1960s, 1970s, of great conflict. And my attention was then drawn to one figure, who was uh, Oscar Romero, now Saint Oscar Romero, Archbishop of San Salvador, the capital of El Salvador, one of those tiny little countries in the isthmus of Central America. Particularly relevant as we celebrated his feast last week, 24th of March. Oscar Romero became Archbishop of San Salvador in 1977, at a time when El Salvador wasn't that much different from Ukraine today, a place of conflict, injustice, violence, murder, really, really depressing scene. And with great bravery and courage and fortitude, Archbishop Oscar Romero condemned the abuses that were taking place on the part of the hardline military government, military dictatorship that was in power at the time, who was trying to cling on to power by a program of repression, violence and murder against uh, their own people. And just like Jesus, I felt, he encapsulated really Jesus' message for the modern world in the 1970s. Just like Jesus, he condemned those abuses. Just like Jesus, he was threatened that if he didn't shut up, <laughs> he'd be done away with, but he kept on. He was told to leave San Salvador, go into exile, just like Jesus warned to get out of Jerusalem. Uh, he refused. He stayed where he was. He knew death was coming, just like Jesus knew death was coming. And finally gave two speeches that were his death sentence. One calling on the president of the United States at the time, Jimmy Carter, to stop supplying arms to the military government in El Salvador because they're being used against their own people. And secondly, asking the soldiers of the army of El Salvador to obey a higher command, that of God, and stop firing on their own people. You might say that uh, <laughs> the same request is being made today to Russian soldiers in the Ukraine. As I say, the parallels are there. And those two uh, speeches, uh, uh, they, they were his, his, his death, his death knell. Um, a few days later, he was assassinated, shot dead, uh, while celebrating Mass. He just finished the uh, the gospel, was moving over to the altar, and a single shot in the head from a sniper killed him. But just before he died, his very last speech said, prophesying his death, as Jesus did, that he would rise, as Jesus said he would. He said, 
They might kill me, but I shall rise in the hearts of the people of El Salvador. And subsequently, that's what happened. You know, 10 years after his death, uh, there was a peace agreement. There was a, a, a peace and reconciliation uh, commission set up the United Nations. The perpetrators of the crime were identified. Conditions improved. In 2014, he was declared blessed. And in 2017, Pope Francis declared him saint. Saint Oscar Romero of the Americas. And he is now a living, inspirational, risen um, example for all of us who were, uh, who were pursuing not only um, the, the word of the gospel, but also the word of humanity to, to improve human rights and spread fraternity, understanding, mercy and justice throughout the world. In fact, the UN has recently declared his feast day, um, his Catholic feast day, his death day, if you like, 24th of March, as the World Day for the Campaign Against Abuses of Human Rights. So that was the moment, his death, which by the way was on my mother's birthday, 24th of March, so I always remember it. That was the day I decided to do everything in my power to try and get over and work as a volunteer in Latin America, if possible, and Central America in particular. And would you believe it, my wish came true. Out of all the countries that the um, British Volunteer Programme could have sent me to in 1983 uh, as an advisory uh, town planning officer, it was to Nicaragua, another of those little uh, Central American countries in um, Latin America, in Central America, Spanish speaking, just the same as um, uh, El Salvador, a uh, Catholic country, just the same as uh, El Salvador, a country in conflict, just the same as El Salvador. So that's the first of three characters I'd like to present you uh, to this, uh, this morning, Elizabeth, and to all the listeners as a sort of prism of the way I saw Jesus at work in our world today. Uh, perhaps it's a, a good point to, uh, to stop there, to pause, and I'll leave you on tenterhooks before Thank presenting you to the second person I'd like to present. Thank you, Father John. You've given us a bit of uh, traditional Peruvian music as well. This is uh, Who I Know music. Could you say a bit about this kind of music from the Andes? Yes, Peru is divided into three distinct geographical re regions, each of which have their own culture, their own language and their own music. The Huayno is the traditional music of the Andes Mountains, normally played with um, a small guitar called a charango and um, panpipes, zamponia in, in Spanish. Uh, so um, I, I, this, uh, this really, really got into my blood and under my skin during time of, of uh, my, uh, my mission in Peru. So I hope it gets into your blood and under your skin listening to it as well. Wonderful. Thank you, Father John. So let's listen to this traditional music from the Andes and imagine Father John out there. Tengo perlas de allá y hacen que yo me retire, perlas de allá y hacen que yo me retire. 
que yo tengo perdas de allá y hacen que yo me retire perdas de allá y traditional music from the Andes Mountains in Peru and this morning we're joined by Father John Bowles of the Columban Missionary Fathers and he's telling us all about the adventures he's had in Latin America as a priest. Father John, what else have you got to say to our listeners this morning? Taking you back to uh, my first experience in Latin America, when of course I, I, I still wasn't a priest. Uh, I was a committed, I was a missionary, committed layperson, uh, but uh, living out my vocation as I then thought it was by um, trying to lend technical assistance to uh, the, the government of Nicaragua, that was um, undergoing a, a, a vicious civil war, and I was put in charge of a refugee relocation program. Uh, just the same as we're seeing so tragically in Ukraine now, many people displaced by the fighting 
Well, the same was happening in, in Nicaragua at that time, uh, but most of them were unable to leave the country. So it was a case of um, uh, internal relocation. And uh, I was put in, in charge of one of those, uh, those programmes. But before I got to Nicaragua, I had a slight problem. I couldn't speak Spanish. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not terribly bright when it comes to picking up languages. I'd, uh, they tried to drum French into my head over six years in, in school without any great success. I had attempted to teach myself Spanish uh, before I went to uh, uh, Central America, uh, once I knew I'd been appointed there. Uh, remember, this was in the days in the early 1980s, um, before uh, the internet was never even thought of. Uh, when you had to uh, learn or teach yourself through records and they're getting the BBC teach, you, teach Yourself Spanish programme and just playing vinyl over and over again on the same sentences. But uh, as soon as I got over there, I found it had all been a complete waste of time. Um, so they sent me to Mexico uh, because there was uh, some very good uh, Spanish language schools there uh, to a place called Cuernavaca, uh, about 100 kilometers outside of Mexico City. I arrived in Mexico City on the evening of St. Valentine's Day, uh, 1983. Uh, went out to live with a, a Mexican family, uh, total immersion into the language and uh, teaching by day and then back at home with the family during the night. And being a, a, a inveterate adventurer, I spent my weekends touring around places in central Mexico. And one of those places which turned out to have a tremendous impact on me was the Basilica, the, um, uh, the, the pilgrimage site of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Now, uh, it might interest you, your listeners to know that the, the biggest Marian site, the biggest pilgrimage site to Our Lady in the world in terms of numbers is not Lourdes, it's not Fatima, it's not Medjugorje, it's Guadalupe. Our Lady of Guadalupe was the manifestation of uh, the Blessed Virgin in five apparitions in 1531. Uh, I suppose it's, uh, you've got the link because I'm speaking on Radio Maria. Well, this is Maria. Uh, this is Mary appearing uh, in one of her most famous uh, apparitions five times over in a place called Guadalupe. Now, as I went out into uh, uh, what I considered to be a, a mission in, um, in Central America, I was very conscious of the fact of looking back into the history of uh, injustice in, in, in the continent ever since the Spanish conquistadores had arrived, European colonization, and how that related to uh, my Catholic faith. And when I looked into the uh, history of the apparition of um, uh, Our Lady, it was absolutely astonishing for me, it was a revelation because uh, just as I've said that uh, Oscar Romero, for me, was a, a modern day uh, Jesus. Well, Guadalupe was bringing to life in, in modern terms uh, the, the Magnificat, you know, that great prayer that uh, Our Lady speaks, uh, her, her longest speech in the Gospels in the entire Bible. In, in St. Luke, where she talks about uh, uh, her people um, and casting the mighty from their thrones and uh, raising up the lowly. Well, when you look at the apparition of Guadalupe, there was much of that in the message of her apparitions. Let me expound and explain. First of all, Guadalupe is not the correct term. In true colonial fashion, 
the name Guadalupe came from Spain uh, and was the name of a traditional um, uh, Marian apparition or cult in Spain that was grafted on trying to co-opt to the Spanish uh, conquerors an apparition that was actually focusing on the conquered, not the conquerors. Uh, the correct term is Our Lady of Tepayac. Tepayac is the place where the apparition took place, a hillside a few miles outside of uh, Mexico City. The apparition took place in 1531, just 10 years after the Aztecs had been conquered by Hernán um, Cortés and the Spanish. The apparition was not to one of the conquerors, but one of the conquered Indians, um, a man named Juan Diego Cuatlatoatzin. Juan Diego Cuatlatoatzin was a convert to Catholicism uh, and was on his way to, um, to Mexico City. Uh, to uh, take part in a, a Catholic liturgy. But the apparition didn't take place in a Catholic church. It didn't even take place within the Spanish-built city of Mexico. It took place outside the walls in an area still inhabited exclusively by Indians on the site of an Aztec temple, supposedly a pagan temple that the Spanish destroyed in this little spot called Tepeyac. So the apparition was not to a Spanish conqueror, but to a conquered Indian. It was not in the Spanish city, but outside in an Indian area. It was not in a, a Christian church, but on the ruins of an Aztec temple. It was not conducted in Spanish, but in Nahuatl, the native language, uh, which was the first language of um, Juan Diego. And the appearance of Our Lady took on the form of an Aztec princess. So all the identification was with the poor, the humble, the downtrodden, the suffering, the conquered. And she asked uh, Juan Diego Cuatletoatzin to go to the Bishop of Mexico City and ask for a church to be built in her honor uh, for the local population in Tepayac. So he toddles off to, uh, uh, to Mexico City, and as you can imagine, the, the, the pompous Spanish bishop isn't going to believe the rantings and ramblings of a poor, stupid, thick Indian who can't even speak Spanish properly, so he just uh, uh, throws him out. So that's when Juan Diego goes back in another apparition. Uh, Our Lady invites him to pick these gorgeous flowers that are miraculously grown up on the hillside of Tepayac and put them in his, his poncho, his mantle, and to uh, uh, cascade them in front of the disbelieving bishop. And when he does, not only is the bishop astounded by these flowers growing out, out of season, but also by this beautiful image of the Virgin Mary imprinted on the poncho, on the mantle of Juan Diego. Uh, so then he believes uh, the, the church is built, and that becomes um, a symbol of Our Lady's presence and the presence of Jesus in Latin America, always identifying with the downtrodden, the poor and the suffering. And that for me was a, a, a revelation, because that showed me that uh, today, uh, and like when I was there arriving, that was the today for me, 1983, uh, that that was where um, uh, Jesus and Our Lady were, 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 were showing themselves. And you can say the same is today when people say, where is Jesus? Where is Our Lady in the suffering 
of uh, people in, uh, in in Ukraine or anywhere else in the world. Well, Jesus and Our Lady are suffering along with the refugees, with the wounded, with the innocently downtrodden, with the discarded and the suffering. So that's something that inspired me further on my journey, on my vocation, which ended up in Peru, which will be the third section of my presentation this morning. So with uh, Our Lady at our side and Oscar Romero at our side. Here's another musical interlude for us.
<laughs> we are joined this morning by Father John Bowles, who is sharing his extraordinary life story with us. That was another traditional song from the Andes Mountains in Peru. Thank you, Father John, for telling us about Our Lady of Guadalupe. We are, as you say, Radio Maria. What else have you got to tell us this morning about about these exciting years as a missionary? Well, thanks for selecting that uh, uh, piece of music. Uh, another wino from the um, uh, the Peruvian Andes, but a very special one and uh, very special to me, uh, because you might have heard the, um, the, the 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 singing turning into to, to shouting um, at the at the end. Uh, that really is the voice of suffering. I mean, we've talked about the the suffering voice of the poor of Latin America. And no country um, encapsulates that uh, suffering of Latin America more than, than Peru. And that went on, uh, in, indeed it's still going on, but it was going on with particular force when I arrived in Peru, now ordained as a, as a priest in 1994, um, because it was engaged in a, a, a vicious civil war. Um, and one of the uh, most, one of the darkest moments in that civil war, which took the lives of 70,000 people, uh, was at a, a village called Wanta, um, when um, the, the army uh, went in trying to locate subversives who'd been attacking them, uh, couldn't work out which of the Indians were subversives. So um, in the age-old counterinsurgency uh, policy of uh, if you can't spot one, take them all out, they killed all the men of the village wiped them all out. One of the most infamous massacres of the uh, Sendero Luminoso Civil War in Peru. And that, that song um, was, was written about that. And that's what you got the cry, that's the cry of the anguish of the, uh, the mothers and wives and sisters uh, finding their, um, uh, the bodies of their slain loved ones. Flor de Ritama, uh, the flower of the Ritama, uh, a typical flower of the Andes, but it's also about resurrection because as the, uh, the buds of the flowers uh, bloom again every, every spring, they look forward to the resurrection of their dead, just as the uh, Ritama will bloom again in, in springtime. The suffering of, of Peru it really uh, is millennial. Um, now, many, many countries in the world, of course, do uh, suffer poverty, uh, and Peru is just one of them. But it's, it's a scandalous that Peru should be poor because Peru is incredibly rich in um, natural resources. And also it has a very, very long history of civilization. In fact, what your listeners might not realize is that Peru is home to the second oldest civilization on earth. Older than Greece, older than India, older than China, and even Egypt. Only the, um, uh, the, the, the urban centers in the Fertile Crescent of Mesopotamia uh, are older. They grew on the slopes of the Andes, between the Andes and the, um, and the Pacific Ocean, in the uh, irrigated uh, lowlands as the, uh, the, the snows melt in the Andes, rivers flow down through the, the desert, and uh, this desert land irrigated is very fertile. This gave rise to civilization after civilization, going back four and a half thousand years. 
um, just we talk about the Incas. The Incas was just the last of a whole series: the the the, the Caral, the Cotos, the Chavín, the Paracas, the Nazca, the 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 Mochi, the Wari, the Chimú, and then the then the Inca. Uh, very very sophisticated uh, uh, civilizations, and when the um, when the Spanish came in, of course, they, they, they just recognized these as barbarians and set about destroying both their culture and their, their religion. But the greatest suffering, and again, this uh, might become as a surprise to people, was not caused by military conquest. Um, it's often been asked, and indeed I used to ask it for years when I was reading those history books as a kid. How is it that a tiny handful, a few dozen Spanish troops, were able to conquer these great empires. First of all, in 1521, in um, uh, the Aztec Empire of Mexico, and then um, uh, in 1532, the uh, Inca Empire of, uh, of Peru. Well, the reason was not so much military might, but disease. The conquistadores, the Spanish, the European colonists, brought with them diseases to which the local Indian population of course, Indian itself is a misnomer. They call them Indians because at first they thought Columbus thought he, he found India. <laughs> so he called them Indians um, and the name stuck. Um, but the, the, the reason that uh, the conquest was so easy is that these Indians, Amerindians, had no previous contact against many of the diseases that were rife in Europe and against which Europeans had uh, uh, natural immunization, especially smallpox and smallpox decimated the uh, local population. And by decimated, I mean decimated. Uh, decimated comes from, from the Latin uh, tenfold. Um, uh, it means nine out of 10. And that's literally true of what happened in Latin America. If you take the Inca Empire, when the Spanish arrived, conservative estimates put the population at nine million. Um, liberal estimates at 12 million. But anyhow, you're talking to around 10 million uh, in 1532. 45 years later, the Spanish census showed less than a million. So that's, and so, again, by the, 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 the most conservative estimates, around 90% of the local population was wiped out in the first 45 years of the conquest. And not by uh, military action, but by disease. And it was that completely uh, uh, depopulated area that was then settled by the, uh, the Spanish, and the few surviving Indians were enslaved. Uh, they were enslaved, first of all, in the mines for gold and silver that the, uh, the Spanish were desperate for, and then on farms. Great haciendas or estancias uh, ruled in, almost in the feudal way in which uh, Norman lords uh, ruled over their Saxon serfs in 11th century England. The same happened in 16th century Latin America. But the uh, difference with uh, England is that that system perpetuated until the 1960s. Yes, the 1960s. You still had a virtually feudal society existing in Peru right up until that time. Uh, with a uh, small group of extremely wealthy, powerful Europeans holding sway over an increasing number, but continually impoverished and powerless Indian subpopulation. You had independence, of course, led by people like uh, uh, San Martin and Simon Bolivar, 
Bolivar, from where you get the, the name of the neighboring country, Bolivia, Bolivar, Bolivia. Um, 1821, um, which means Peru celebrated its bicentenary last year, 1821. But independence was independence Mahu. It certainly wasn't independence of the, the majority of the local population. It was just that the, the Europeans born in Latin America uh, supplanted uh, the Europeans who were sent over from Spain and um, in Brazil's case, Portugal, uh, every year to rule the country. But the, the system endured. And it was only um, in the 1960s, 1968, 1969, when agriculture reform freed these virtual uh, serfs um, from, the, um, uh, from, from servitude. But it didn't give them e economic independence. They remained uh, deeply impoverished. And as you can imagine, if you've got a small group of powerful, super rich rulers, an increasingly large group of repressed <laughs> poor people, uh, social tensions are going to explode. And they exploded in 1980 in this war called the Sendero Luminoso War. Sendero Luminoso means shining path, which is the name taken up by a, an extreme Maoist organization who exploited the genuine grievances of the uh, Peruvian peasantry and poor industrial uh, working class in order to launch a revolution very similar to that which uh, Pol Pot uh, launched in uh, Cambodia, or Kampuchea, as he termed it, in the 1970s. Um, a vicious uprising, which not only targeted the government, the rulers, the landowners, the army, but also anything that they associated with colonisation, including the Catholic Church. So it was like chucking out the bay with bathwater. <laughs> it's like the targeted, although we never, uh, um, non-violent action was the way the church was uh, espousing uh, the movement, that uh, uh, the movement towards reform should be carried out by non-violent action, similar to that had been carried out by Martin Luther King with the, uh, the black population in the USA. But this movement was co-opted, manipulated, taken over by extremists. And as I say, they didn't only attack uh, those who were really oppressing the people, but also any elements of what they considered to be uh, uh, colonialism, including the church. And many priests and nuns and especially catechists, committed lay people, uh, were killed during this uprising. And as I mentioned earlier, in the context of the song Florida de Tama, the government, being totally ham-fisted, uh, sent in the army, and because most of the uh, the rebels, who were only a tiny percentage of the uh, Indian population, were Indians, and the army couldn't tell the difference between subversive Indians and loyal Indians, they just began taking out the whole lot, and entire villages were, were wiped out. And that, of course, added fuel to the flames, because those massacres just uh, excited um, fury against the army, against the government, and were Sendero Luminoso's uh, best recruiting agents. agents. And uh, the, the, uh, the Wanta massacre is the, uh, the best, or if you like, the worst example of that war. That's the environment into which I went in. The Columbans were working in that environment. We always, um, I think I said in my first um, uh, presentation, the Columbans have been the troubleshooters of the Catholic Church ever since our time in um, Wuhan in China, up to being expelled in 1952. We've asked the hierarchy in any country going, give us your most difficult, your most dangerous, your poorest area, where your people are suffering most. 
those are the people we want to accompany, even at the the, the, the risk of our own lives. So my first um, uh, my first posting was to the Andes in uh, an area that had um, recently been supposedly pacified, where the peasants were going back uh, from where they'd been um, kept in, uh, in in guarded settlements to their uh, their, their, their original villages. And that was where I came very close to a Stendera Luminoso uh, ambush. Uh, that was the in the beginning of 1995. Fortunately, in 1995, um, more, more astute, wise humanitarian policies were adopted and won out. Uh, the war finished with the, uh, the, the capture of Babiel Guzman, who was the, uh, the leader of Sendero Luminoso, the Shining Path. And subsequently, Peru did enjoy um, many years of uh, relative prosperity um, brought on by the fact that it has many of these uh, minerals, uh, not just copper, uh, but also these little minerals, things like molybdenum and cadmium that you find in the, uh, uh, in the scale uh, that were in great demand then, especially by China that was undergoing a, a, an economic revolution and the boost in these prices boosted the economy and brought 20 years of relative, I say relative prosperity. Uh, to Peru, um, but often that prosperity didn't trickle down and left large numbers of poor people still on the peripheries, particularly on the peripheries of the big cities where they tended to migrate to away from the countryside. And the biggest city of all was Lima. So the biggest shanty towns in the country were around Lima. So we were asked to work in those shanty towns around Lima. And so I was pulled out of, uh, of, the, of the Andes, my parish up in the Andes Mountains, and sent to work in the, um, in, in the shanty towns of, uh, of Lima. Um, now, I, I don't know, uh, Elizabeth, when you, you want to um, pause. Yep. Let's, piece of music let's, there. let's play some music and open the phone lines in case anyone has a question. Um, thank you, Father John, that's such an incredibly fascinating and gripping testimony of your life experiences. If you have a question for Father John, the number is 01-223-375-564, 01-223-375-564. You can also send us a comment or a question on our WhatsApp messaging, if you know that number. And let's listen to a little more traditional Peruvian music.
you are listening to Just Life. If you have a question for Father John, the phone lines are open. 01-223-375-564. Do give us a call. We're waiting to hear from you. Okay, I'll be back in a sec. I've got uh, Helena on the line. Helena, you're through to Father John. Hello, is my phone line clear? Elizabeth. Yes, I'm clear, Helena. Hello, Father John. I wanted to know if when um, you are going on your missionary trip and you're with uh, the different folks, do I'm sure people fall in love uh, with other people that they're being missionaries with and perhaps start families. Do families do missionary trips with the with you guys with the Columbans? We um, I, and the Columban fathers. Uh, we there are also Columban sisters who worked with us in uh, in Peru, and um, we also have um, Columban lay missionaries, um, committed lay people uh, who who uh, volunteer to to work with us for usually a period of uh, three to six years. Uh, and we have had um, uh, we have had couples um, who have, have gone out, and in Chile we did have um, a family. Uh, but, oh. it's, uh, but it is difficult. I mean, you're talking about um, uh, conditions of, uh, of of great poverty, where uh, the, the services you you you'd normally depend on to bring up a family are not always available. Um, so it's uh, it, it's. It's 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 possible, uh, but not always advisable to uh, go out as a family to the sort of areas we're uh, we're working in. As um, you know, as as as, as single uh, people, we have uh, uh, much more flexibility in in working there than if you have uh, dependents. That may okay. So young people, before you have kids, go <laughs> for your missionary work now. <laughs> Don't wait till it's too late. Oh, thank you, Father John. What I would say is that um, we depended uh, in our work on voluntary work from, from local people. And Ooh. that was absolutely astonishing. It was one of the things that really opened my my eyes when I got to the, particularly the, the Shanty towns of Lima, because you're talking about vast parishes, not, not vast in terms of area, just the opposite, the highly concentrated, very high population density, but vast in terms of uh, numbers of people. 
um, in in my first parish. Uh, sorry, my second parish. My th the first parish I was parish priest of. In fact, I was the only priest there. We reckon there was a population of about seventy thousand, um, nearly all of whom were, were uh, ostensibly Catholics. Um, and many, many communities. We built up what we called uh, communities. Um, you, there was no use having one mass centre and just expecting people to come to them. Uh, what we did, we tried to establish various mass centres and we ended up with a dozen, 12 of them. And uh, obviously I couldn't get round on my own to say uh, a mass at each place uh, each, each Sunday. So we, uh, we invited a, a, a lay people to come in and help us. And we had about 200. Um, who joined us over the year, and, and they took on the main work of running the parish. Um, we had a, a group of people, uh, a committee, a community, uh, in each of the, the mass centres, uh, and they were in charge of um, uh, weekly liturgies when the, the priest wasn't, wasn't there. I just used to do a tour um, so that uh, every, um, every uh, week three communities would get mass. That meant every community got mass once a month. And, and I then leave uh, consecrated hosts in the uh, in, in the community chapel, which was often no more than a, a wicker work hut. Um, and the uh, the local ministers of the Eucharist would then guard the uh, the blessed sacrament in in the homes, uh, take it into the chapel on on the Sunday. The priest wasn't there, and and then celebrate um, um, a Sunday liturgy with with the readings and uh, an act of uh, thanksgiving and communion. And that was the way we kept the, uh, if you like, the, the Sunday Mass celebrated once a month, extended throughout the other three Sundays of the month. And they also took on um, all the work of catechesis, of First Communion programme, baptismal programme, marriage preparation. They, we empowered them to do um, funerals because uh, of great significance in Latin American society is the wake uh, the prayer over the body the night after death uh, before before burial. So we um, uh, we empowered lay people to do this. It's not a sacrament. You don't need a priest to do it. And so it, it always makes me uh, smile when we talk now about uh, synodality and uh, working together. And I'm all in favour of it. I mean, tremendous initiative by Pope Francis and uh, lay people taking up their responsibilities in, in, in the church. But we were doing this 40 years ago in Lima. <laughs> <laughs> amen, amen. Oh. Practicing synodality since since the nineteen eighties, <laughs> and uh, it is it's the only way forward because it's it's been proved and tested. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you, Father John, and for all the work you do. Right, John, that's all. Thank you, Helena, for calling. Uh, I think we've got a couple more minutes. I've got one short question for Father John. Father John, my only experience of Peru is um, is Paddington Bear, who I seem to remember came from darkest Peru. Can you tell me what that's all about? And Annette Marmalade sandwiches as well. Absolutely. Uh, well, the, um, uh, interestingly, there are bears in Peru, and I've seen them in the wild. Um, because on my free weekends or weeks, uh, I used to go off uh, trekking out in the wild as much as I can. Uh, so I've seen them. Incredible. So, do they have little hats? From Peru. <laughs> they do not have little hats, but they do have. And this is uh, why I've always had a grudge against Michael Bond, who, uh, who of course, wrote Paddington Bear and his illustrator, because Paddington Bear is portrayed as a European brown bear. Whereas, in fact, the bears you get in Peru are Andean spectacled bears. 
You might have seen them on David Attenborough or on uh, at the zoo. They're the bears that, yes, are brown, but then have big white rings around the eyes, hence spectacle bears. But Michael Bond did not present Paddington as uh, an Andean Peruvian spectacle bear, as he should have done, but as a European brown bear, albeit with a, 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 Peruvian, a Peruvian cap on, an Andean cap. But I'm always grateful to him because that's a great leading for me when I'm doing mission promotion in schools. Because I always ask the kids, uh, uh, who knows anything about Peru? And all the uh, the hands go up. I want to say, what you know, um, it's not about the uh, you know the Incas or the Andes. It's about Paddington Bear. So that's always a, a great leading for me. At least they know about Peru. And they know there's bears in Peru. So that's a good start. Wonderful. Yeah, at least they know it exists. And I don't think Michael Bond would be able to get away with it in, in the in the 21st no, century. Not with internet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Father John, for this absolutely fascinating part two of your story. If anyone has missed some of this episode or indeed the first episode, they are available as podcast so please do check them out and a huge thank you to you and if anyone is interested in the Columban Fathers um, please do go to to their website what's your website Father John my website my website don't worry if you don't know it don't worry look up the Columban Fathers and um, if you feel also called to be a, a heroic witness to Christ in this world as Father John has given us a wonderful example and last time you gave us a wonderful um Peruvian blessing. Maybe you could do that again and just quickly tell us what it means before you, before you give the oh, blessing. Oh, oh, by the way, our website, www.columbans.co.uk. Thank and, you. Uh, uh, that's uh, Columban Fathers, Columban Sisters and Columban Lane Missionaries. Get all the information of the three groups uh, on uh, with that address. So no one's got uh, any excuse. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Full information online. Um, so the, um, uh, the, the the traditional blessing I uh, I end up with is simply asking um, Almighty God, uh, the God of mercy, uh, the God of peace, and the God of power, to uh, to bless us in His name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then I ask that that blessing uh, remain with us today, um, hoy, uh, tomorrow, mañana, and forever, siempre. Entonces, hermanos y hermanas, pido a Dios, a Dios de misericordia, a Dios de la paz, a Dios del poder, que nos bendiga en su nombre. Y esta bendición se les otorgo en el nombre del Padre, y del Hijo, y del Espíritu Santo, y que esta bendición permanezca con nosotros, hoy, mañana y siempre. Amén. Amen. Thank you so much, Father John. Thank you for joining us here on Radio Maria.